Yo, what's up, everybody? You're listening to Between the Gutters, a podcast where we talk about the stories within the panels. Today, we continue part two of our fantasy comic book recommendations with our friends Julian Zachary Hanna and Alexander Shanks. For Albert and my uh, recommendations, check out our previous episode, episode 33. All right, next up then, Zach, what's yours? All right, so my pick uh, was Conan the Barbarian. Um, This particular issue is called Weight of the Crown. I will say, um, in a sense, I I cheated a little bit because this specific issue uh, doesn't really have the, the, I guess, fantasy elements or the things that we would generally think of or describe as fantasy. Um, But I picked this issue because for one, we're we're describing stuff that would sort of uh, get people into comics or, you know, as a first read to get them into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this does really, really good in that category. And as we all know, like the wider Conan mythos definitely has like tons of sorcery and wizardry and everything else you can imagine. Um, so the world of Conan is definitely a fantasy or a fantastical one. Uh, this specific issue doesn't really have a lot of those elements, um, but it is a, a really great story that gives you sort of, um, I guess you could say like an initial flavor of Conan. Like if you read this, then it's like you kind of, you kind of know what to expect for the rest of the series or the rest of the Conan stuff that you read. Yeah. So a brief synopsis uh, of the plot or what happens in the story. This is actually, uh, so Conan's uh, what's called a Sumerian. Um, I had to look it up to see what the historical, I guess, reference for that is. Um, As far as I can tell, there are like historical Sumerian people, like it's based on historical (laughs) Sumerians but I don't think the author necessarily had exactly that in mind. Like he used the Sumerian um, name or Sumerian people as something to base Conan in. Uh, But it seems like there's a fantastic element as well to it. Um, Looking at the Wikipedia page here. uh, I mean, obviously from the writings of Robert E. uh, Howard, um, Hyborian Age, among others. So Robert E. Howard is the original author uh, who came up with that. He, he created Conan, but is this story actually based on one of his stories? Or I thought it was a Derek, Derek Robertson still came up with an original story, correct? No. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm just, I'm kind of describing like what a Sumerian is, though, in case someone didn't know. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I think they're supposed to be based on, on Celts or like that would be like the historic side of it. But uh, it does talk a lot about like, Atlantis and him being part of a a people that were lost and things like that. So I think there is like the author like sort of weaves a fantastical element even into the origin. Um, The reason that's pertinent to the story though is this is a much younger version of Conan. Um, As time passes uh, he, he assumes a crown later on in life. I think uh, when he becomes king of like Aquilonia or something like that. Yep. Um, this is before that point. So if you consider him being king of Aquilonia, the stories about 
Conan uh, being a good king or doing things the right way. This story is actually about what happens when you do them the wrong way. So <laughs> this, is, this is Conan uh, essentially what happens is he, he becomes king of this, this small, uh, I guess, fiefdom or whatever in Gaul. And he assumes the crown. Um, but him being much younger, he just thinks like, oh, I've got the crown. It's party time. I'm a rock star. I can do whatever <laughs> I want. So he, he does exactly what, say, someone, I would think like in their late teens or early 20s, I'm thinking of like, the way he reacts to it makes me think of like a college kid when they first get out of the house, right? Like he drinks all the beer, drinks all the wine, gets the women, like takes the, like all the riches to himself. Uh, he, he throws parties and eats all the food. Like, you know, he just has parties every day and goes to war, chops off people's heads, goes home, there's a bunch of women, wakes up, does the same thing every day. He's like, okay, this is great. Um, meanwhile, you know, there was a person who was supposed to be uh, his father's rightful heir. So what happens at the beginning of the story is that the father dies uh, in battle and his son, who is supposed to assume the throne, uh, the people are afraid because their, their king has just died. Um, so they actually don't give the crown to the son who was supposed to assume the throne. They give it to Conan instead, who's actually just a mercenary in the army at this time. But they're like, <laughs> Hey, this guy is like big and strong and like intimidating. Like he is frightening. Let's let's give the crown to him because he's he just looks like a much stronger warrior. <laughs> so, so essentially, they give the crown to young Conan. Um, he punks the guy who's supposed to be king, and he runs off. And Conan assumes the kingship and and you know starts to go about having his rock star lifestyle and all that. Um, but as the story progresses he he learns the hard way like what what leadership really actually means um he just he keeps living sort of like a hedonistic lifestyle at the expense of the rest of the kingdom he actually kills one of his advisors early on so you know by the time you get later on in the story like obviously things have not been tended to so the people are starving the people are sick they keep going to war because you know, Conan just being this, this young brute, this young warrior is just like, oh, well, if there's a problem, you just chop someone's head off and bang, <laughs> we're done, right? So he just, every problem that he has, he just rides into battle and he, he figures there's nothing you can't solve with the sword. Like if you could summarize his attitude throughout most of the, the story, it's, yeah, just anything, any enemy can be met with force and that's how you solve problems. Um, so he has no, no sense of diplomacy. He doesn't know anything about, about you know, essentially like good stewardship with, with his kingdom. Uh, he doesn't really care anything about the subjects to begin with. It's about everything that he can take uh, from the kingdom. Um, so eventually, you know, all this stuff comes to a head and he's, he's going out to battle later on and there's just so few men left. Like, the only ones that are left are just like the, the old sickly guys who haven't been killed <laughs> off yet. People are starving. <laughs> no one wants to come support Conan. They used to be happy when he went out to battle, but all the people are all bummed out because they don't have food. Conan himself is hungry and he doesn't have food. Um, so everything comes to a head when he goes out to meet this army. And lo and behold, 
it's it's the prince who should have assumed the crown all those years ago and you know he's been training and, and growing strong so he, he can come back and like take conan on and assume the the crown that's rightfully his uh one of my favorite parts of the story is is conan has finally come to a point where he's realized what his pleasure and his hedonism has cost the rest of the kingdom the rest of everyone that that relies on him um and the prince comes to uh comes to challenge him and at that point he just knows he he knows he's in the wrong um i'm actually looking for the page right here oh yeah so i have this it's like one of the the last pages before the climax of the story and then everything is sort of sort of goes down after that but the prince says what have you done to my father's kingdom Sumerian and he says by Krom um you know because he's taken off his his helmet and you know he's surprised when he sees that it's the prince um and so the caption reads on that day the prince returned to his people and he says I warned you that you would reap what you sowed I swore I would return and that day has come thief so he challenges him um he says, uh, lift your sword that we may do battle. And he's shouting at him, pointing the sword at him. And Conan's just, <laughs> he's sitting there with like this, this straight face. Like I call it the fail face. Like when, you, when you're looking at someone who's shouting at you and you know that you have no argument, like they, they finally just punked you out. And he says, I could kill you, son of God, easily. He says, but there has been enough death at my hand in this valley. I have wronged you, Prince, as I have wronged these good people of Gaul, your people. He says, I will leave this to you to set right. Be their king now as your father intended and put away any thoughts of revenge, King Aaron. Anyone who follows me will die by my blade. So essentially, he takes off his, his crown, gives it back to the prince. There is no battle. He, he just gives it to him, gets on his horse and, and he rides away. <laughs> So the last couple lines, it says, uh, Mighty Conan will once again rule from a throne, but then as a wise and righteous king, more leader than warrior. So the whole issue is just about him learning that lesson, um, that there's, there's a time for war and there's a time for killing. Um, but when you lead, it can be, and it should be sometimes, a totally different thing. Like war and battle and just aggression won't solve everything. So, yeah, that's, I mean, it was supposed to be a brief synopsis, but yeah, that's basically how the story goes. But I, it's one of my favorite stories because it's like, in spite of, well, I shouldn't say that. It's, you see, the side of Conan you see most often is the warrior who has his back against the wall and, and he just kills everyone like Conan kills. That's right. what he does. That's what he um, does. <laughs> exactly. That's always been one of my favorite things about the character but this is just kind of using that concept and using it to teach a deeper lesson and it kind of it kind of lends another dimension to the character uh that you don't normally see and it also reinforces his motivations for a lot of of what he does later on so especially if it's something that you're just uh coming into the comic or just coming into the character and like what drives this guy what is he all about and sort of trying to deconstruct um, what makes Conan Conan? Uh, this is a really good place to start. The art is just, it's fantastic as well. Um, Derek Robertson, like, doesn't miss a beat. He's just, 
I mean, there's blood, there's gore, there's like, um, <laughs> there's homage to Frank Rosetta. If any listeners do not know who he is, please look him up. Like one of the most, if not the most legendary and influential um, Conan artist ever. I think he used to work on book covers for other random fantasy books. Yeah. <laughs> I think I read a lot of those books too, just because I saw the cover. Like I would, I'd see a Frazetta cover and I, I didn't know it was him drawing them at the time, but like, man, that's crazy. Like I look at the art and then I pick it up and take it home and read it. Um, but yeah, I mean, even, even that last panel on the first page, just, just straight out of a Frazetta painting, like, pose the the crazed look in the eyes um a lot of the compositions he uses on a lot of pages you know using that um what we now know is like the triangle composition and all that uh the way he paces the story even uh some of the musculature and the way that he builds conan um i can see a lot of frisetta in that as well i mean although still obviously it's his work there's there's definitely places where you can just tell he does a little he does a little nod to it um, so I appreciated that. I will say one thing that that sort of uh, was a sour note with some of the art. I can't tell if it's the anchor or what, but you know how Robertson has that really um, that really heavily detailed sort of like sort of like gritty textured style. Yeah. Well, some of it on some pages, you know, like if he's drawing a war scene or a scene where there's a a ton of people or a ton of stuff going on in one panel. I think maybe what happened is the colorist didn't didn't provide enough contrast to sort of pick out what the focal point's supposed to be. So on some pages, like in some panels, it sort of just blends together. There's this big mishmash of like detail and grit and you know, so it's it gets a little flattened out and it's hard to tell what's what. But um overall the the artwork for the book is really stellar though. Like I said, those are just a couple of really like little nitpicky things for me. Um, man, I wish this thing had page numbers so I could point it out specifically. But <laughs> there's a scene where, um, oh yeah, it's the scene where, uh, you know, the prince is kind of the first one where he's confronting Conan about, you know, the crown is rightfully mine. I should have the crown, blah, blah, blah. And Conan's like, come and get it. Like, just a little kid right so he just pushes him down in the dirt so <laughs> in that panel like there's you know there's a huge crowd there's all these people and stuff <clears throat> and it's really well drawn but i think looking at it now i think maybe that's what it is like the colors there's not there's not really enough contrast to pop conan and the main character out from the background like i would like because what you want is you know to focus on the main characters and let the rest drop back but it seems like everything is kind of in the same value range for those panels. Um, so it bothered me a little bit. I don't know if it's anything anyone would normally like pick out if they were just reading it and I hadn't said that, but there it is. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that sort of stood out to me. Um, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was just looking at the, uh, I don't have a copy of it in front of me. The story is familiar because I, I remember, I think it's in one of my trade paperbacks but uh, I don't have it at hand. Um, but I was looking at uh, the preview pages online and I, I see that scene and I, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, yeah. It, and it's just, like I said, it's just like one or two little things. Um, I wouldn't say like, don't let that ruin it for you at all. I, I would never say like, don't pick it up because of that one little <laughs> thing, those two little spots. Um, 
definitely if Conan is something you're interested in, uh, this is a good jumping on point. I will warn that there is some like uh, adult material in the story and there is adult material in many Conan stories. Um, so it's not something probably if you're not comfortable with that, it's not something to share with like a little kid or your grandma or something like that. But <laughs> you don't grandma, think grandmas, look at this. Yeah. <laughs> you don't think grandmas could enjoy Conan? They might give a heart attack. <laughs> Isn't it cool he's bagging chicks? <laughs> I mean, I mean, hey, if they're into that, whatever. But yeah, no, it's 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 a good story though. Um, I would I would highly recommend it as as an entry point to Conan. Yeah, from the way you described it, um, it sounds like it's it's a it's like a one issue long uh, evergreen story that summarizes everything uh, crucial about the character and concept of Conan. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and and from your summary of the story, it also sounds like there's even kind of a, I don't know, not not necessarily like a moral, but like a, a lesson to be learned, maybe. I guess that's like a moral. But it, it sounds yeah. like there, yeah, like the story tells you something about how, uh, you know, giving in to our hedonistic or immature natures is uh, very unwise. It's yeah, it's a, little bit, it's a little bit of a parable. Um, and it does have, I mean, there's other dimensions to it as well. And Conan has a character arc in the story and he goes from being a mercenary who cares about himself and getting everything that he can for himself to someone who actually kind of learns how to care about other people. I mean, as much as Conan can. And yeah. he, <laughs> he winds up just acknowledging at least that he was wrong uh, when he rides off. But yeah, sorry, Albert, you're going to say something? Oh, no, I was just going to say that it's interesting that it's a Conan comic because, well, I mean, I don't, I've, I've never read too many Conan stories, so I'm not quite as familiar, but of what I do know of Conan, he's never struck me as the kind of guy who was, as a character who was reflective or necessarily uh, regretted things, but that just might be due to my sheer ignorance of Conan so you know hearing that sort of a story is kind of interesting to me I mean it, it could be interpreted that he didn't necessarily regret his role at least his action as king but he, he could reflect upon it and not regret it saying like I lived I lived a good life I lived what I wanted to do but it's not really what I wanted to do and I didn't do it the best way I could so I, at least I didn't get the impression that when he rides off that he's like he's regretful he's just like look Here's the crown back. I really don't want to be king. I'm going to go do my thing. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's one reading of it. Um, when he says that there has been enough death at my hand in this valley, and then he says, I've wronged you, prince, and I've wronged these people, or the good people of Gaul, uh, your people, it, to me, that really screams that, that he's acknowledging that he's done something wrong and that he does seem to have hurt like a sense of regret about it. Um, he's proud. He tells the prince he's going to kill him if he follows him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm regretful, but step to me again and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. I'm regretful. I'm not stupid. 
I, I think I would say that Conan as a character, he, he actually is more reflective than we would give him credit for. Um, he's, he's a character that has, he, he's got layers of depth, you know, like even though I think the popular understanding or interpretation of him is he's just uh, a barbarian, meaning he's a, a dumb brute. I feel like um, most Conan comics and the Robert E. Howard stuff um, tends to portray Conan. He's not just a brute, but he's actually a shrewd thinker. You know, like he's not, he's not just some guy that is gonna, uh, if he's gonna do something, he's not gonna take the, the most uh, brute force method all the time. You know, like he, there is some level of cleverness to, to him and, and he puts thought into his actions and he does reflect on his actions. Like I, I feel like a lot of the comics where Conan is, is king, like I, I'm thinking of the other Dark Horse Conan comics that I've read. Um, not necessarily written by uh, by uh, Derek Robertson, but um, I think around the time that Derek Robertson put this comic out, I think Tim Truman might have been writing the Conan comic, and I think he did some King Conan comics, and, and those are stories where Conan, as an aged man, um, he's already king of Aquilonia, but he, he looks back and reflects on his past adventures, and um, yeah, there's just that sense that he, he is somebody who who is able to kind of step out of himself and observe uh, or reflect on his, his actions and, and kind of judge um, whether or not he did the right thing or, or, you know, if he, if he messed up, he's, he's able to admit it. But again, you know, it's like Zach said, he's, he's still a proud guy. So he, he can, he can admit his mistakes, but if you point out his mistakes, uh, you might want to think twice. <laughs> I think also I think, like, I think him as a character is like, he, he, he likes women. He, he, he enjoys to an extent, a degree of violence. Those are things that come easy to him, so it's not surprising those are the tools or the means by which he goes about doing things. But like you said, it doesn't mean that he does, he's not aware, doesn't think about other possibilities when, when they arise. It's just that he has a preference and he has a certain mm-hmm. demeanor and attitude which can come off to other people as being gruff, as being, as being simpleton. But it's just because he's, he's, a, he's a man who likes the path of least resistance. Why should he explain everything he does in, in intellectual means when he can simply just like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And if that yeah. involves you putting my fist to your face, I'll put my fist to your fist. Yeah, he's, he's, I think, uh, a warrior, like kind of first and foremost, like he's definitely like a king and there's all these other layers to his personality, but like, he's a fighter. He just, he, he likes to fight and that's what he does. That's part of what defines his character. But I think he's still, he has a sense of honor that sometimes, sometimes every now and then you st- you see like a little bit of empathy, you know, um, even soldiers have, have that point where something else comes through besides just like brute strength. So yeah, he, he definitely has those moments and um, I appreciate when you can see more layers or more nuances to a character than just like one single thing all the time. Yeah. Also, like as a, as a as a warrior, it's not just about knowing how to swing your sword and block their shield. The warrior also has to think about the battlefield around them, you know, their position, all those other things. A warrior should, to an extent, strategize. 
but also being that Conan is also an adventurer and encounters all these various people, cultures, all this other thing, I think it'd be, it'd be hard to say that he wouldn't have learned from those experiences, learned about the way, the different way people think. And, and over the course of his years of journeyings, he's kind of forced to reflect and kind of understand what people are and like his and what he's doing. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's sort of a tactical aspect to it. Um, it kind of reminds me of, uh, um, I'm blanking on who was working on it. I, I want to say Brian Wood, but I don't know if that's right. You remember that series uh, you gave me, Drew, called Northlanders? Yeah, that was Brian, Brian Wood. Wood. Brian Wood? Okay. Yeah. Um, there's an issue where, like, he deconstructs the anatomy of, of a fight between these two, like, Viking guys. Oh, yeah. They're, 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 all, they're strategizing. Basically, the issue is both of them, like, kind of following both of their thought patterns when they're strategizing how to beat each other. Um, you know, they're just, they're two soldiers, but they kind of, they're fighting sort of in their minds mentally as they're, as they're fighting physically, but you Mm -hmm. see all the strategy and stuff that goes into it. Like, oh, if I move this way, this guy's going to slide his blade like under the shield and and knife me in the leg or something like stuff that only, uh, experienced soldiers would know or would know to think about. Um, there's, there's always that like tactical aspect to it. Yeah, definitely. Brian Wood also did write some Conan stories. I actually haven't read his run, but uh, he he wrote uh, Conan for Dark Horse. Uh, I don't know, probably around the similar time frame as this Derek Robertson series or issue. That's cool. That's cool. I did not know that. Yeah, I, I liked a lot of the Dark Horse Conan stuff, the especially the stuff that was written by Kurt Busiek. Um, he had a long run, and then Tim Truman had a long run. Most of the art was by Kerry uh, Nord for Kurt Busiek, and also uh, Tomas Giorello for uh, Tim Truman's run. And that's some really good Conan stuff. There was also uh, a Conan, kind of a year one, not really year one, but like a Conan origin story that uh, Busiek wrote that had art by this guy named Greg Ruth in, in this really intricate almost like painterly style that was amazing too it's called born on the battlefield i would highly recommend that nice yeah i love me some terry nord art as well were those ever collected like single volumes yeah all the dark horse stuff was collected in single volumes uh you can also get it on comiXology if you if you want digital versions and also because uh, a couple years ago marvel regained the license to conan I think they're reprinting all of the Dark Horse stuff in trade paperbacks. They might even be making a an omnibus for the Busiek run. Um, I think I feel like I saw that in an upcoming solicitation. I could be wrong though. That was uh, I was about to ask if there's gonna be a, a, an omnibus for the Busiek stuff. They should make an omnibus for that and the Tim Truman run because because both of those are are excellent, man. And uh, on between the gutters, you know, we've talked about. The Savage Sword of Conan, that was one of the greatest Marvel comics of all time. I think we, I think that was way back in like episode six or something. We talked about <laughs> that. <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, yeah a, it's, a lot it's of coming out Conan December stuff. 1st. Oh, you looked it up, Famous? Yeah, Conan oh, the Barbarian by Kurt Busiek, Omnibus, hardcover, December 1st, 2020. Nice. Awesome. There you go. Harry, Harry Nord is illustrator. Yep, he did most of that run. That that run was cool because uh, the the born on the battlefield story that I was talking about the origin story of Conan, like that came out within that run. But 
but uh so if you when you read the trade it's it's all like one story but the issues are like i think it was like issue seven issue 17 issue 23 you know like they're not they didn't come out um at the same time uh, because it wasn't a limited series it, it came out whenever carrie nord needed a break <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you gotta love Conan, though, man. And and uh, my favorite, one of my favorite Robert E. Howard quotes is that what he always said about uh, the idea of bar of of bar barbarism, right? Like I think it was a uh, what, what was it? Civilization is unnatural. Uh, barbarism is the, no. He said barbarism is the natural state of mankind. Civilization is unnatural. It is a whim of circumstance. And barbarism <laughs> must always triumph. <laughs> oh that goodness. pretty much summarizes the ethos of Conan. <laughs> that 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 is the quote. Yes. Yeah. Every every good Conan comic has to live and die by that mentality. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, there, there's an optimistic attitude for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Shanus. Would you like to, would you like to share your recommendation? Yeah, my recommendation is Bone by Jeff Smith. Um, compared to the other um, works mentioned, we're talking about a I think about a thirteen hundred page tome of work. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of history: Jeff Smith um, self wrote and published this work with actually his wife's help too. Um, he wrote and illustrated the whole the whole book. Um, even though there wasn't, I think it was about now, it's been about eight years now, maybe that they've published a color version of it. At least 10, I think. Okay. 10. I know they released the colored versions in single volumes. Like they released the black and white original copies in single trade paperbacks. And then they did a, um, a complete collection of it in color as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so bone actually follows more of the typical fantasy storyline. However, it, it deviates in, in a few key ways. One is, although it has involves dragons, it doesn't involve all the other fantasy creatures people typically think about. There are no goblins, ogres, orcs, or elves, or whatever else you have you. And the other thing it deviates from is that it really follows the story of three cousins, um, Phone Bone, which is spelled an F, Phony Bone, which is spelled an P-H, and Smiley Bone. Um, I am kind of curious about the naming because it almost sounds like the names of the seven dwarves in, in Snow White's story. <laughs> like, but, um, and they each have their own, like, different um, characteristics. Like, Phony Bone, not surprisingly, tries to scam people to, find, to make the quick buck. Phone Bone is actually the one who's kind of like the, I would say, the the heart of them all. Like, he is intelligent. He has honor. Um, so he acts and does things on that basis. And Smelly Bone is, is just kind of, like, simple and friendly and, you know, doesn't like to... And even though he's always wrapped up in Phony Bone schemes, he always, like, kind of some, someone undermines them. Because he just doesn't care for the scheming part of it, even though like he's along with it for the while until the very end, in like some um, slight way, kind of messes it up. Um, but it really follows their journey, 
And in their journey, they encounter a, a young girl named Thorn. Um, and later on, they encounter Grandma Ben, who we find out is um, Thorn's grandmother and um, former um, uh, queen of the, the, I guess, the city or the region that they're going into. And the, the funny thing is, you could you could compare the journey of the bones to the journey of the hobbits and Lord of the Rings, with the exception that you take Frodo out of the picture. Meaning that it's not about Frodo trying to get to the mountain. It's not about um, any one of the bones trying to get to some goal. That, that they're the one has to be the, the charge of some of some artifact. Um, they just get wrapped up in the mythos of um, that region, and it's just kind of fun to watch them kind of in their own ways um, interact with around them, interact with the rat creatures. Um, and so there's a lot of humor in that, but it was also just very refreshing because I, I would argue that Thorn is a primary character, but I would say secondary to the, to the bones. And it was just kind of fun to just kind of read the fancy story where it's not about the people you start off with who are the, central actors of of solving the problem although phone bone does have a pivotal role in that near the end mm -hmm. um but it's the role that um it's the role they play as being main characters but supporting the thorn and rose in recovering their kingdom and and defeating the the uh the locust um yeah like it's it's really uh the quest is Rose and Thorn's quest, and and the Bone cousins are, are like, I guess part of their party, right? More so, I'd say Phone Bone is part of the party, while Phony Bone and Smiley Bone kind of party out in a way, even <laughs> though things get dark. It's just, it it really is like, um, it it just is just very entertaining. Uh, when I first read this, um, it was recommended to you by Drew. This was our actually this was. You, you were in Davis for five years, right? I was there for four. four. Okay. Oh, but you but did you live there for next year? Uh, no, I didn't. I left after I graduated. Okay. Okay. I I I thought I thought we. Okay. I thought you were there for next year or something because I remember you regretted my year, but I remember going back to Davis for something or another. But my timing is wrong. But anyway, so Drew recommended this book. I bought this. I think at the time I bought it at Borders Books. Rest in Power Borders. Yeah, I bought it at Borders Books. Yes, R.I.P. Borders. Uh, long live Barnes and Nobles, right? <laughs> I don't even think that's the case. There. <laughs> <laughs> they, they might be on their last legs. Stores, right? That's that's the theme these days. Look, power uh, to the Green Apple. Yeah, Green Apple yeah. reopen. That's good. That's always good. Um, so, I I bought this book, and I I really do like the essence of fantasy. Um, and I really just wanted to read it the moment I bought it, even though I had a midterm in a really difficult math class the <laughs> next day. That doesn't sound, that's never a good sentence to start with. I, I got back to my apartment and I just sat down and started reading Bone. I was like, you know, I'll read a chapter or two. I got, I think about halfway through it and it was like two o'clock in the morning. And I said, okay, I should probably go to bed by now. 
and maybe try to say for my for my math test. And I did that, but I think I woke up in the morning and said, you know, I can study a bit later too. And I continued reading it, trying to finish it off. Um, I forget how I did on that math uh, test. <laughs> probably not that great, but probably, but also at the same time, probably not terrible. I didn't like exactly like bomb or anything. But I, I just, was just I, I had to devour bone. It was, it was literally just like, I just, just, it was like, you could think of it as in one sitting with a small break. Um, it's and a so long like, series, man. And you had the one volume edition, right? Yeah, I had the, it's the one volume paperback edition that came out, um, black and white. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so for our listeners, in, in case you don't know, this was originally 55 issues long. And I, I think the, yeah, and I think Shana said that it's like 1,300 pages uh, when you look at the one volume edition. <laughs> yeah, some of that. It's, it's, definitely, it's definitely over 1,000. Because I, I remember, yeah. I, I, for some reason, during the long time I was reading it, I did not really pay attention to the pages numbers until I realized I was in the thousands. I was like, oh, okay. So I read all that. Um, but yeah, so it it has, it's like, it has its nice, it grabs you with its nice sense of history. You get drawn into the, to the intrigue of that region, but you're also just, you just get enamored with the characters, even like the, the schemes of Phony Bone. It's just, it's just so much fun. And I think that's what it boils out to me was it was fun. Mm-hmm. The writing was good. You never felt like you were being pandered to. It didn't feel like it was a fantasy story written to appeal because it's a fantasy story. It was written with, by Jeff, clearly in a story, an idea he had because it's something he fell in love with in writing the story. Whatever idea he had that began this, he wrote it because that's what he wanted to write. Um, which, I mean, clearly speaks to dedication because if you're gonna self-publish a work like that, you, you, have to, you have to be confident that what you're doing is what you want to share as a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it definitely came through to me. Uh, all of the characters had their unique voices. You didn't feel like you, the tropes were never there. I mean, like, like I said, there's, there's no original story written anymore. It's about just a variation of a story that's been kind of done before. And the variations that he gave were enough that you didn't feel like the tropes were really copied heavy, heavy handedly. The trope was simply, it's the base of a fantasy story. There is some history of this land. There is a quest there are characters and creatures that are encountered that help or deter the protagonist from achieving their goal. That's a, I would call it a very bare bones skeleton essence of like saying a story has a plot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I would hope a story has a plot. No, not every story necessarily has to have one, but you know, if Tommy has a plot, sure, that would make sense. It's a spine of whatever they're telling you. Um, But then it just like gives you, a very different style of, of fantasy. And I think to the point where they come, they come from a place called Boneville, I believe. Mm-hmm. That's Which kind from. of begs the question, is everybody there just with the last name Bone? Like, are they all related? Or is it just that they take on the last name of their species, wherever they are? Um, but the idea is like, Phony Bone was at some point trying to be a mayor there. They had balloons. They had, they make references to having access to like what seems to be like technology. And they, they come out of this land on this journey. And I forget why I, I have look, I forget why they left Boneville to begin with. I think they got kicked out because phonies had a scheme that made everybody mad. That's right. That's right. Yes, that's right. Yes. 
not surprising because that's kind of what follows them along almost everywhere. And they enter this region which feels more like a traditional fantasy magic-filled world where they don't really have what would seem to be like modern technology. So it's an interesting like just mention that they come out of this place called Boneville, which gives the impression that it is got it has like more technology than what would one would imagine with like a medieval style setting, going to a place that feels more medieval. Um, they don't dwell much on Boneville itself, but it, I just I just thought it was a nice, interesting contrast. Kind of like I don't know, maybe in some way like like kind of taking along with it, saying like you're in a world where you have technology in the modern world, and now you're going along with them in the journey into like you're going into a fantasy. Uh, the antagonists themselves were also quite interesting. Um, you have the two main rat creatures, which are portrayed as being the 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 inept dumb um floozy not floozies but um like henchmen like they really feel like like the gangster henchmen that you might see like in um a parody of a gangster story like they're they're, they're... oh wait, wait 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 hold up does this mean it's time for albert to do his 1920s <laughs> chicago gangster voice you know what i was saying this i was thinking albert's gonna pop out with his voice right now yeah see you won't take me alive copper <laughs> that's that's cement shoes for you. Twenty-three skidoo. <laughs> that's actually the go. voice of the right creatures too. <laughs> um, I was waiting for it. I wanted to see how long it was going to take before. I was still in. chuckling at the fact that you referred to them as floozies. I was like, <laughs> what kind of rat creatures are these? I was trying to think of the right word, and I was blanking, and I realized that they are salacious. <laughs> Isn't Floozy typically referred to a female? It, it's, I think, uh, yeah, it, it's usually in reference to uh, a woman of loose morals. I, I was, I was literally stuck between like three or four words. Like, I wanted something like cronies, but but henchmen. Like, I was like, what kind of comic is this? <laughs> <laughs> what are these rat creatures doing? To, to be fair, the rat creatures they show a lot of leg. They. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so I just was trying to find the word, and I just I was juggling my head like between three words, and I just it just sounded right, and then I realized no, that that's not right. Um, <laughs> it made for comedy though, so I'm cool with it. <laughs> but anyhow, they, so these there are these two uh, main rat creatures that are really are like inept henchmen for for a gangster lord um, called King Duck, um, but he himself as a leader isn't perhaps isn't isn't inept. He's just roped into being the antagonist due to other forces beyond his power. Like it's not entirely clear that the rat creatures themselves are evil or in the, or in the conflicts that involve them, they were being led or being manipulated by powers that kind of forced them into that position. But anyhow, um, you have that, then you have the mountain lion, Roque Jaw, which is pronounced, which the bones pronounce Rock Jaw, which is actually a pretty cool name, you know? Um, There's a lot of humor in the comic. There's a lot of humor, um, and there's also a lot of subtlety and um, subversion when certain characters play the role of the villain, but then at the end they they don't. Like everybody's just playing some role, and it's kind of subtly interwoven. Um, so there's there's a there's a lot of really cool writing in that sense of like you don't really know what any each of the characters will do. Um, how things get revealed. 
and there's also still some really cool fun magic that that's involved so overall i was sucked into it because it was a fantasy story but it was a new kind of fantasy story for me mm -hmm. and like drew said it's just it really is filled with humor and he he punctuates the humor at the right places when they really need to be present um because it the book does get darker as you get further into it so one might almost feel like humor doesn't have a place in there but even with a lot of like dark movies even horror movies there are places when the subtle subtle humor is relevant or like kind of i think emphasizes like the the threat level that the people involved are dealing with um so yeah i'm not sure what else to say about it it's it's like it's i i i'm not going to go into details about a 1300 page book we can be here all day long i just want to say that i recommend it because if you like fantasy or if you're curious about a good fantasy story in comic format and one that feels like it's an epic one that would be like the level of like let's say um lord of the rings or constant put it into comic format that it, it took oh i think over it took over a decade to actually publish everything yeah and you think, you, have, you think about if you have issues right imagine a traditional pub, a publishing company they're pumping out an issue once a month right so 55 issues is about four and a half years I think it took them about three times that amount to publish everything. Yeah, I think it took him like 13 years. Yeah. But this so, is a story that has legs, man. Yeah. Like ever since and, he finished it, it's, it's just perpetually in print. No, that's right, because he started in the late 80s, I think 86, 87. And early early the 90s. The first, until, issue, until, the first issue came out in 91. Oh, 91? Oh, 91. Okay. Yeah, the first issue, but I'm sure he was developing it earlier from, I remember, um, so there, there's this other uh, comic book podcast uh, called Off Panel. Yes. That I yes. like to listen to. And, and recently he did, an, the guy who does Off Panel, uh, David Harper, did an interview with Jeff Smith all about Bone. Yeah, I read that. I listened to that one, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think Jeff Smith mentioned how he had started um, Bone, like the idea of it in a comic strip that he, that he did, or... Or something like he he had been developing it uh, before the first issue officially was released. Yes, you're right. Sorry, I was wrong. The first publication was July 1991. But yeah, but I, I imagine he was. But I mean, in order to publish it, he had to first write it. And I think after he wrote it, he was trying to he was trying to go around shopping it around to see if anybody would be willing to pick up as a as for publishing it or hire him on. And I think that didn't work. So he's going to self-publish and write it. Yeah. What took so much longer is because not only did he write and draw the stories and do his own editing, it, it took time, effort, and money to like to to publish and print out yep. um, a number a number enough number of issues to justify selling it and doing self-publication. Um, and so yeah, so it started in 1991, and it. The last publication was actually 2004. Yeah. Which actually, if you think about it, is fairly recent, in, like fairly more recent in history than you think about it. But one thing about 1991, or even him starting writing a story probably before then, like how that dates me because like I was born in 83. So I was, I was literally like a child when he, when he was started writing and publishing his first issue. And by the time he finished the last issue, I was almost done with college. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was I was thinking about that too because Bone was a comic that I knew about when I was a kid because I think I would read about it in Wizard magazine or something, and I would see it at the at the comic store on the racks. I never got the first issue, so I never. I guess as a kid, like I I knew what it was. I just never really read it, and it was also uh, because it was a self published book. It was more expensive than than other comics. Right. I think it was. I think even in the '90s, it was like three bucks for for an issue, and it was in black and white. So I think as a kid, I was like, "Oh man, that that's that's like twice as much as another comic that I could get that's in color." <laughs> you know, <laughs> twice not, as much, but for less than half of the the colors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like if I was a kid and I saw that, I'd be like, "I don't read a black and white book. What is this? I want my colors." Um. As as a as a as a more refined adult, I'm like, the black and white artistry is actually really shows and sharpens a lot of lines, and features of the characters. Like, yeah, he's he's an amazing cartoonist. Amazing. And, and I think that's the emphasis is that it, it's a comic, but it's it's but it's done with it's he's a cartoonist. It's done in the cartoon style, so the lack of color actually highlights more the cartoonish aspect. This this really like this sense of like this true like feel of fantasy that these characters themselves are fantastical in, in the way they're drawn. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like they don't, it's like he's combining two different worlds, right? Like the, the bones, they look kind of like these weird, bizarre, uh, like almost like a Disney kind of character. Yes. They're not, yes. They're not animals, but they look like they could be like one of the ducks crossed over right. with Pogo or something. Yeah, I was thinking more like Animaniac type style. Yeah, or, or the Animaniacs. That's that's a good one too. Like they're just like these weird looking, cartoony <laughs> creatures with with uh, gigantic noses and a couple of fingers, big feet, and then they're interacting with uh, you know realistic looking people. Right. Like also, if have any of you do you watch Rick and Morty? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's that creature where you press that button in the box and it copies itself? The Meeseeks. The Meeseeks. Yes. They're, the the bones almost look like a Mesex in the way they move and look. <laughs> I think they're bodies, but yeah, I get it. <laughs> um, but at the same time, he draws the human beings with a little with 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 a little more refinement in the sense, like you get this contrast of like you have these cartoony creatures, the bones. You have these more, you could say, realistic um, human characters and other characters. You. Even his dragon looks very strange for a dragon, but then you yeah. have the mountain lion that looks like a mountain lion. The rat creatures look like, I guess, rat creatures, but shaggy ones. I don't know how to describe them. But you get that. You still also get like the big eyes, like kind of the Disney esque, like like kind of drawings. So you get it. So you get. So you can see a wide range of how he draws the different um, characters and creatures, and each one kind of evokes a different sense. Um, and feel. So, as much as I, I enjoyed the writing, the the art was was beautiful. Yeah, I'm I'm look I'm just flipping through my copy right now, and and uh, the level the of copy? crafts. Yeah, I'm looking at my colored copy. The level of craftsmanship and and storytelling is is just amazing. Like every every. Every page layout is pretty straightforward and, and simple, but um, the panel-to-panel storytelling is is great. Like he, the way he he tells jokes, where you know he might show this um, the same panel 
and then give you a beat and then the punchline in the third panel. It, it does remind me of, of like a cartoon or not a um, of a comic strip. strip. Um, yeah, and, and he's got, you know, he's got a mythology that he's built up. He's, he's got this world of characters. Uh, he's got recurring jokes that crop up every so often. I think I think the, the one joke I remember or, or just refreshes between Phony Bone and Smiley Bone, like when they leave Boneville, they're talking about they're debating about the dollar and the exchange of goods and services, and when they're going back to Boneville, Smiley Bone kind of turns it on Phony Bone. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. This 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 is just a great comic, man. I remember the first time I I discovered it. So I, I like I was saying, I I heard about it back. When I was a kid, it never really, I'm talking like back in the early 90s, so I would have been like um, like eight or 10. And then, and then uh, it wasn't until I was in, I think sometime in high school, I was at a library and I saw that they had uh, the trade paperbacks for the first couple of volumes. I think, uh, I think the first three, because I remember reading up to The Great Cow Race, which is one of the most uh, famous of the Bone stories, The Great Cow Race. And I remember just being at the library all afternoon reading all all those all three of those volumes, and I was like, "Man, I need more of this." And then I, <laughs> I don't know, I, I just I was still in high school, and then um, it wasn't until I was in college when when he finally finished the whole thing, and I was like, "Okay, now I gotta like get all of it," you know. And by that point, I think I think uh, like in the '90s they had started uh, reprinting the bone stories in Disney adventures in color and, and then Scholastic picked it up and, and then it became this whole thing uh, geared towards kids and became, you know, a phenomenon and to the point where it's, it's always been in print ever since. Um, I think the Scholastic pickup was actually after he finished the publication of the black and white series. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right. And I think based on the off, off panel um, interview that was done by David Harper, I think Neil Gaiman approached Jeff Smith and said, hey, we're looking to kind of start a team with Scholastic to write um, children's stories and kind of said, hey, this might work better for color for, to kind of get more, to be more children oriented. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm glad they did that because I, not that I needed the color, but it's nice to kind of see the vision with the color. And I think because Jeff, Jeff Smith himself was very particular about who he wanted to do the coloring and yeah. I think how it was done. So, yeah. so he, he clearly himself had an idea or vision of like what he wanted the colors to be. And even though he wasn't really a fan of going that route to begin with, he, he was convinced and he, for what it sounds basically, he's like, he's really happy with how it turned out. Yeah. Uh, and you got to admit that the color does give it more appeal to a, a younger audience. Yeah, I would definitely, I would you know? definitely see that. I mean, like I said, myself as a kid, if I saw it in color, I would have been more likely to pick it up rather than if I'd seen it in black and white. Because as a, as a child who's not so well-versed in storytelling, if I'm seeing pictures, I want colors to my pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then... Um, it's like, it's like trying try to sit down an eight-year-old and have him watch an old black and white movie. Yeah. And see how long been. they'll sit in the couch before they're like, nah, I'm, I'm going to play them all with myself on the video games. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's so true. It's so true. My parents tried that with me a couple times and just, it, it didn't work. It really does not work. 
And I, I really didn't get into black and white films until I think, um, I mean, in high school I've seen maybe one or two, but I didn't really appreciate them even after undergraduate when I saw M, um, was it, it's a German black and white film. Uh, and, and then 12 Angry Men. And the realized that you don't need color to tell a story. It, it can be used as a device to add to a story um, but the story itself speaks for itself. That is to say, like without the color, the color you can put in if you want for yourself. But the acting, the the script writing, the the, the beats, the joke set up, that's that's all going to be there regardless of what color you use. Granted, if you use terrible colors, that could be an eyesore. But maybe that's why it's good sometimes to not having color. Yeah. It's, it's also cool how I think because of the scholastic versions, there's like this whole generation of kids that grew up being fans of this comic too. Um, right. You know, like a, a generation of kids that's, that's like 15, 20 years younger than us. They, you know, it just shows that this story has a, a wide appeal. It, I, well, yeah. Which I, which I think is a great thing, especially in, in, in the time and age where you have young adult novels, which I think most of them are terrible having something like bone which they can pick up and read as a kid or a teenager or as an adult and appreciate nuances the subtleties of writing the the art that's being put in there in different ways um is is great for the push for getting more people to read and just general like sense of literature yeah. but also because it's so popular and has done so well it's something that i know will be will remain in publication for years to come which means Maybe in the future again, there'll be some revision of it with some some other little gimmick of the fact color or something else that will bring yet another generation into the fold. But I think it's gotten the strength of those of us who were kids, even though I didn't know about that, who read it when they were kids, and then picked up the black and white copies, and then also picked up the color copies, who are now adults and have their own children, and are buying these books for them and their family. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 nice to know that this is something that's going to, that's going to perpetuate for a, for a long time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It really is a great work of literature and of art, and of the and I think in, the, in its own way, like I, I'm like I don't get a soapbox, but the self-made man he self-published this. It's a testament to the fact that if you have an idea, and it's something you have to get out as an idea, then just do it. If you have the will, you'll find a way. And maybe it'll hell cost you a lot up front, but if that story needs to be told, tell the story, whether or not you're making a, a huge profit off it, whether or not it's meant to be made into a movie, your story is the story you need to tell. Just go and tell it, publish it. And I think nowadays more so, we have a lot more access to publication that we didn't have in the 90s. Particularly, you know, the internet's a great place for that, for a purchase of self-publication that's a little cheaper. Right, um, right. There are a lot more companies that exist now that will hire you in the sense of like where you just do your own it's your own creative own work and they will assist in the publication that in that regard you know yeah when he, started, when he started in 1991 i don't think image existed yet right image didn't begin until like a little bit a few years later i believe you're correct and dark horse hadn't yet adopted the complete uh, notion of creator owned works quite i think well going back to image i think image was 92 92. So, so Bone does predate Image. Um, yeah, I think, was it, I, I mean, I'm even wrong, I have to read up on like, but I feel like Image was, Image, Valiant, all those things kind of like became like, 
I would argue like the resurgence of comic books in the early 90s, particularly when they did the revival of the X-Men title, and I think they did in 91 or 1990. Mm-hmm. And this influx of, of that style of art and so forth, I think is what kind of pushed public publishers to kind of create Image and, and, and Valley and uh, Malibu, I think, was another company that came about at that time. Yeah, Halibut was a company, yeah. And uh, I think well, a lot of them... Well, image image, on... image uh, grew out of, you know, the most, the most popular Marvel artists of the time wanting to strike out on their own. I mean, that, that, that's probably like an episode of its own, but um, that's essentially what it was all about. Was okay, so I was like, actually, it was Marvel comics. wasn't completely off. It was somehow motivated yeah. by Marvel's resurgence in the in the, what they were yeah. trying to do. But the whole point is, they started this new version of like, we'll be a publishing company, but creators will own the you know will own the, the things they create. Mm-hmm. Um, they will hold on to the royalties. I mean, the publishing company would obviously benefit from some of the royalties, but if the creator wants to leave, that's their correction to take with them. Um, but they probably would have a contract where they could still publish, you know, to some extent, the works created. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure Jeff Smith could have probably gone back and done that, but at that point, he was already doing this himself. Like, um, also, people weren't exactly sure whether these companies like Image and other would would exist long enough with that model. Well, there was actually a small period, I think, for like maybe. I think maybe like six or seven issues image actually did publish okay. bone like in the twenties. Okay. I don't remember exactly why that didn't last. Um, but you know, you got to remember too, at the time, the, the image image back then wasn't image like it is today. You know, like yeah. there was a certain sensibility to image in the nineties that uh, yeah, would not match bone. Image I, know, the image I know of is the image of the two thousands, which, you, yeah. you get Walking Dead, you have um, Invincible, um, you have a lot of other cool stuff. That it would have been funny if really they had stuff. done Bone in like a McFarlane style. Then, yeah, I was going to say like, like <laughs> I would have been like, I don't want Spawn this. And, um, <laughs> and the pit. <laughs> Rob Liefeld's Bone <laughs> crossed Man. over with Youngblood. Yeah. <laughs> Young Bone. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other topic too about how image itself has transformed between the 90s to the 2000s and what it is now yeah but but yeah nowadays there is more access to self-publish um <laughs> and there are also a lot more publishing companies that will present a favorable deal for creators um so and heck, if all Somebody else fails, story, people could, could always that. yeah. If, if all else fails, people can can publish online. You know, they yeah. can just do it do it as a web comic. Yeah, and there's, all, there's, comic there's things that, like uh, webtoons that are getting pretty big now too. Yeah, and sometimes if it's a popular enough web comic, some publishing companies will ask or pick it up and say, "Hey, we'd like to put it as a print." Yeah, like that's what happened with PvP. Mm-hmm. Player versus player. Yeah, um, I remember that one. That was, was originally a web comic, and that was picked up by Image actually. And published in um, these strange sized booklets. I don't know how, what to call them, but what were you saying, Albert? It was like landscape, I think, or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. It, well, it started landscape, and then they went back to the traditional structure of of portrait. Portrait. Yeah, which is weird. 
I, I agree. It, it made it made my collection of the single issues annoying because I couldn't quite get them to look nice altogether. Yeah. Um, but when I heard, but I was actually reading webcomic long before um, Image picked it up. So it was it was fun to know it was picked up. So I, it was kind of fun to read it in my hands as um, as a comic book. Um, although they they I think a lot of webcomics end up being published at some point, like in like what's called library editions, where they'll actually make like the equivalent of a trade paperback of a webcomic. Um, and again, that's through a publishing agency that that doesn't take ownership of the creation of the creative work. They just serve as a publishing agency. Um, yeah, so I, I love Bone. I I would hope that there will be another great fantasy epic that somebody will self-publish, um, because I could not fathom the idea of reading a, of reading a fantasy story that was heavily edited <laughs> by somebody who is not the one who presenting the ideas of what the fantasy story should be about. Yeah, it would have been. It's interesting to think that there could be an alternate universe out there where there was a version of Bone where they just kind of defanged it completely. Like yeah, imagine, ma are... imagine Marvel's Bone. Yeah. Well, sp speaking to that point, Albert, when I was listening to that off-panel interview with Jeff Smith, I, I did... There, there are a couple of things that, that stood out. First of all, I just want to mention how uh, one of the things that I really liked about uh, Jeff Smith's um, I guess his ethos towards Bone is that he he said that Bone was never, he never wrote Bone as a kid's comic. He wrote it as something that he wanted to read himself. And it was parents and librarians and school teachers and school librarians. They were the ones who said it was a kid's comic. And he was That's totally right, cool yes. with that. You know, and I think that shows... that you said he wasn't cool with that? No, I said he was cool with that. Oh, okay. okay. He was cool with that. Okay. Yeah, and and... And um, shoot, now I forgot what I was saying. But but I think that uh, it it just goes to show that the story is for that's that's like the the true definition of an all ages story. Yeah, because it, an all ages story is is something that appeals to to everybody. It's not just a story that's only for kids, you know. Yeah. Yeah, then, I think a lot of cases, I think it was the teachers who had read it and then they went to the librarian saying, hey, you should carry this in your library. This is a good book and the kids will enjoy this. And the librarians agreed, they carried this. And I think that's how Scholastic came into the pictures because it's like a, a, a lot of schools um, work with Scholastic and getting publications into libraries that are geared towards children. Book fairs, baby. And I think one of the funny parts of that story was that there were certain parents or people who tried to get the book banned. Really? Um, Maybe because it involved the, the like the, the locust is a demon who is like it's a possessing demon, and I think there's a certain reference to language or something else that parents thought this isn't a kid's story. This is very dark and like and and everything and and it's like and like this is not a kid's story. And it's like he's like he never said it was a kid's story. The yeah, teachers yeah. and librarians said it was a kid's story. Bone is they one of the most challenged books in schools. Huh? Bone is one of the most challenged books in schools. I think. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. But but uh, I was I was gonna uh, respond to another thing that Albert had mentioned a couple minutes ago about. I think you guys were talking about um, editing and, and imagining like an, an edited version of Bone. But yeah. another thing I got from the interview with with Off Panel was was that when Jeff Smith uh, was first negotiating with Scholastic about them doing colorized 
trade paperbacks of the entire series. Uh, he said that he, on the after they had like gone through all these meetings and stuff, like one of the final meetings that they did have before they were gonna you know finalize things, he he met up with the with the lady who was in charge of the of the brand or the imprint, and she had a stack of his original uh, black and white copies with a bunch of post-it notes sticking out all over through a bunch of the pages. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. And, and she was like, you know, we're pretty much ready to go, but um, you know, I guess, you know, the league, like one of their departments had gone through the series and was like, Hey, maybe we can tone some of these references down. Cause you know, there's scenes where they, they go to a tavern and there's like drinking references or something. <laughs> so it's like, can they just be drinking milk instead? Or, you know, just like silly edits <laughs> like that. And, and he was like, no, I'm not going to change anything. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tone things down just to, to make it even, you know, somehow make it appeal even more to kids by getting rid of things that we don't want to expose kids to. He's like, you got to take it or leave it. Or Thorn cutting, cutting, cutting off um, King Doc's arm. Yeah. By, or so, Which is like that. Is and then, and then the, the lady was like, Okay, and then she just like put it aside, and she was like, "We're just we're just gonna do it your way then." So it was it was really fortunate that she was like that, and and yeah. also fortunate that Jeff Smith, you know, stuck to his principles. Yeah, yeah, which, which you don't find as much these days sometimes, but it's it's his creative work. It, like, why would you want to edit a creator's creative work? Then it's no longer what it is. But the, by comparison, Lord of the Rings is a a series of novels that you'll find in almost every school library. And there is a scene in the book where they hunker in a tavern where guess what's happening in the tavern? <laughs> Surly men are drinking beer. <laughs> you gotta, I don't know, yeah, we got to call the authorities, man. We got to tell them to ban the book. But I think they don't challenge Lord of the Rings because I think J.R.R. Tolkien himself was a Christian. So I, I think the biggest resistance to, to Bone comes from like weird, super right-wing, like groups that i don't know want to control what people read well those um, are usually the types of people that challenge anything <laughs> that's true <laughs> it's yeah whatever it's true but i mean i i think there does tend to be a double standard for sure i mean undeniably you can see sort of um if you're going to talk about editing or filtering or, or whatever else sort of like putting a muzzle on things yeah there's there's always definitely censoring yeah, censoring yeah. very vocal uh, minority, and, and we can see that even now. But not having Redbone, um, for one, definitely it's on my list now. I will read it at some point. Um, but for two, from everything you guys are describing, um, I think that's what we're after here. You know, like that—that that is the definition of quality craft, right? Like, I mean, in a sense, it, it sort of defies genre conventions. People kind of don't know what to do with it but it's like um Shannon was saying like he just made the story that he wanted to make and he just he put it out and he wasn't going to take no for an answer and so it has that that clarity of vision and sort of integrity to to what the author originally intended and the craft is executed with such excellence right that we're seeing people it's, it starts to propagate itself almost people are passing it along um, so we get stuff like that. We get classics, right? Like everybody knows, I don't know, Star Wars, Superman, The Matrix, stuff like that. Like things get done where 
if the craft is good enough, sometimes it just, it starts to propagate itself and it sort of disseminates itself in, in a larger culture. So there's that aspect of timelessness. There's that aspect of um, it crossing sort of cultural boundaries or cultural borders. Like a lot of people know like what this is now. It crosses yeah. age borders. Uh, so there's sort of universality that gets, that comes into play with that. Um, those are all pretty good indicators. I wouldn't say like that's like the definitive criterion or anything, but those are pretty right. good indicators usually that you have something with, with really strong quality craft on your hands. Is everyone going to like it? No. But does it force you to like think about it, struggle with it, address it? You know, like do you, you got to ruminate on it a little bit when you read it. Um, yeah, those are, those are all really, really good indicators of, of excellence. So definitely great recommendation, Janice. Um, you sold me on it. <laughs> I think I'm going to pick it up at some point. Um, I'm just I'm telling you that once you start reading it, you, you may have a hard time putting it down. And this is a heavy book, so it should be easy to put down, but no. <laughs> <laughs> it's very compelling, man. It's a very compelling story. Actually, what sort of freaked me out a little bit was when Shanice was describing, like, the binge that he went on. Like, he couldn't put it down. <laughs> I look to Drew's screen, and I see him, like, flipping through it, and he holds up the book. Um, you, you guys, for anybody who can't see it, the thing is like a Bible. It's like, yeah, it's like two inches thick. Like, that's, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> it's so nice. I, I think it's three inches thick. copy but... next to it. <laughs> 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 yeah, but I was like, yeah, dude, that's, that's commitment. That's uh, over, what did you say? Like 1,300, 1,500 pages or so? Over 1,300 pages, yeah. Yeah, yeah, over 1,300. That's, yeah, that's commitment. But it was worth it. <laughs> and sometimes it's fun to get something really long to be invested in, man. Like, yeah, when it comes to... fun rides. Yeah, and when it comes to fantasy stories, I do like really long epic stories and there's also uh the news that netflix is going to do an animated series based on bone so hopefully that turns out to be good and more people will be turned on to the comic oh that's cool yeah it's really cool hey uh drew any any word on when they're going to do that uh it probably won't be for a while because i think the news that netflix is making it I think that news just came out uh, less than a year ago, like sometime at the end of last year. Yeah, it came around about October. Yeah, okay. so they're probably still working on on developing it. Cool. I don't know when it'll actually come out. Movies. What was that? Sorry, I was just saying, yeah, because I want to read it before I see the series. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's epic, man. And I love epic stories. Mm. This is this is comedy and high fantasy mixed together, and it sounds like a weird combination, but it just works because Jeff Smith is a storyteller with a singular vision, and those are usually the kind of comics that you got to read. Mm. Mm. So, guys, any final thoughts on uh, fantasy comics? What are your uh, what are some of the honorable mentions that? You got a name check at least. I feel like a lot of those that would be honorably mentioned are ones that were never allowed to be finished or never have the chance to be completed. However, one I did just pop in mind when we were talking about earlier was um, Matt Wagner's Mage. 
I would give that an all mention because that's kind of an epic. Did he never finish that? No, he that one he did finish. And that was and that was it, I think collected into three volumes, both paperback and hardcover. So there hasn't been there hasn't been an omnibus, but it's three big thick books. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's something to check out at some point. I remember I read the first one like many years ago, like maybe I, a couple I bought decades the ago. Borders, and then I found the second hardcover as well. And then it was a while; it took a while for something for the third one to come out, and I never got the third one because I. At that time, I was just busy and just forgot about it. So I still have to get the third hardcover that collects the rest of the mage story. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the ones that I was looking at was something that I just read recently. Uh, and it is... Hold up. I think I closed it. But it was The Legend of Zelda manga. Oh, nice. Uh, that was a fun story, but uh, admittedly, I think it, there's a chance that it's more because I'm just a big fan of the game, but it, it was still fun. Um, it's Legend of Zelda by Akira Himekawa. That was good. Um, another one that I'm probably going to mention at a later time, um, but I had contemplated choosing it for my fantasy pick but I never actually got around to reading it because I don't have all of it was um Nausicaa Valley of the Wind by Hayao Miyazaki oh nice. yeah that was nice. that was another one in contention that I was going to choose um and the, the I did just think of one that I had forgotten about but the storyteller uh from Jim Henson studio that's, mm. I really like that one uh, that's a really good um, fantasy series because the thing about uh, that is that so it's a story with a framing device and you have this uh, this character, the storyteller and your every story kind of begins the same way. He's kind of like a friendly version of the Crypt Keeper in Tales from the Crypt or something. So it's an old man and you're constantly just pe like you're popped into his world and it's just him and his dog and his dog talks and they're just telling stories to each <laughs> other and each each um so the way that the series is set up is it's usually four issues and each each four issues is there's a theme that surrounds it so you can pick up any issue and just read it but um and you don't need to have collect them in order or anything. So there's a four issue arc about ghosts, and then there's four issues about giants, four issues about dragons, four issues about fairies. It's mm -hmm. it's fun stuff, you know. Like, and each issue has a different artist, but it's usually a fantastic artist. Not anyone that I've ever heard of, but you know, uh, I definitely would give any of them uh, work over some people that are popular now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, if it gives you more than one honorable mention, then I would also give an honorable mention to um, Abadazad. Nice, nice. Um, JMD Mateus. JMD Mateus. And who's um, the artist? Mike Plug? Was that Mike Plug? Yeah, the artist guy? is Mike Plug. They end up um, doing um, something else together, I believe. Yeah, um, Augusta Wind. Augusta Wind, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, the other honorable mention would be. I had originally wanted to talk about Sandman, but we decided that that's probably better safe for perhaps 
maybe a DC top 25 thing. Mm. Yeah, I'd say the odds are pretty good that'll be in the top 25. <laughs> um, maybe, just maybe. And there is another one which I enjoyed the first trade of, um, Sojourn. I remember Walmart. Sojourn from CrossGen. Yeah, that was actually kind of a lot of fun. Um, that, yeah, that was one of those comics that was a traditional high fantasy story. Yes, you don't see yes, too many of those in American comics. Yeah. But unfortunately, Crossing went, went bankrupt before that story could be finished. Yeah. I, was it... Was it by, got bought by Marvel, I think. Yeah. Oh, Marvel bought Crossing or Marvel? Well, I, did Marvel buy them or did Disney buy Crossing and then now Disney owns Marvel oh, and Crossing? I, one I, of those I don't two. remember. I one forget. of those two. I, I, yeah, one of those two. But I remember Marvel, like... They did do some Crossing... Yeah. yeah, they put out some cross-gen stuff. Like they got Mark Wade back to do some ruse, I think, and there was another Mystic oh. series. Mike Carey did some stuff. Wait, uh, they, they they got Mark Wade back to work on more ruse. Yeah, I it think he really did like short. A, another four issues or something like that. Yeah. Okay, because I picked up the first trade, then I was like, all right, it's over, that's it, and then there's more. Okay. For Marvel, for Marvel, it might have just been that one trade. Oh, okay, I see. But yeah. from cross-gen, I don't remember how long it lasted. I see. All these things, I keep track of them and, and look back and find them. <laughs> I do remember uh, reading some of that cross-gen stuff when I was a kid, and, like, I started to get into it, but I was bummed because, like, <laughs> like I said, I kind of stopped before they could finish a lot of the stories, so. I just there was a lot feeling... of artistic talent that came out of there. Yeah, yeah. Steve McNiven, Jim Chung. Uh... Yeah. I want to say Bart Sears, but he was already kind of big at that point. I think they also were publishing a pirate story that they did, I think, because Pirates of the Caribbean was so popular as a movie recently. Oh, Castle Castle Door. Castle Door. Yeah. yeah. Chuck Dixon. Yep, Chuck Dixon, that's right. Steve, Steve Epting. Mm-hmm. Chuck Dixon is cool, people. He's cool. Zach, did you have any honorable mentions? Um, I have one. You know, I'm... I was digging through all my comics, uh, I think yesterday or the day before that, and I realized like how much sci-fi and superhero and like a lot of other stuff I have and how relatively little like uh, fantasy comics I have. Like a lot of the fantasy that I've read is more in novel form or maybe mm-hmm. I've seen movies or whatever, but not so much in comics. So, you know, maybe it's something I could get into a little bit more in the future, but as for uh, honorable mentions, there is one manga that I like called uh, Black Clover. Um, I would say the easiest way to describe it, to me, it has a lot of similarities to Naruto um, in that there's a kid and he's sort of an outcast. Like he doesn't, people don't see him the same way as everyone else. And he kind of has to earn everyone else's respect. And he's kind of this, you know, raggedy kid that nobody wants to mess with. And it's uh it's it's shown in manga so he's he's got to like sort of fight his way up through the ranks but he's got to level up yeah exactly so it's it's set in this um world where everyone has these and trying not to give too much away but everyone has these like uh magic uh talismans essentially these these conduits that allow them to do magic um and there's this ritual where every year these people go and they get their it's like these big books that they have to open up. So they get their item, their item that allows them to do magic. And, uh, you know, whatever kind of 
magic you can do or whatever kind you specialize in, <clears throat> it sort of develops from there. Well, this kid wants to be like, of course, the top wizard or the top mage, but the catch is that he can't do magic at all. He has no magic. Um, so, <laughs> so it winds up that his item, which he pulls out of um, a book that he gets through one of their misadventures or whatever, actually is, is an item that isn't magical per se, but it negates magic, which winds up being actually useful because no one else has that has that ability uh so he gets he gets thrown in with this other group of kids and they're actually they actually are called missions in this universe so they go on all these missions and have these yes. misadventures while while this kid is trying to sort of like fight his way up through the ranks and then the other catch is that his brother who he seems relatively close to i haven't finished reading the entire manga yet but so far he seems relatively close to him um they're still rivals so his brother does have magic and he's one of the best uh, magicians so far. So their whole thing is like, you know, the little kid's like, oh, I'm going to level up and I'm going to beat you. And his brother's like, come on then. So, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll see how it ends. Um, I haven't gone the whole way through it, but uh, it does have a lot of that, that aspect of like exploring what this system looks like and how the different characters uh, manipulate it according to their own motivations. Um, it's a very character-driven story. So, you know, it follows, uh, I think, one team in specific, and then there's a couple other peripheral teams and characters. Uh, but you start to see how these characters develop and the th different things that they're each wrestling with, like as the story progresses. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. It's it's a fun read, but as far as I know, it's it's kind of lengthy. I have, like, the second volume so far, but I think there's a lot more. I, I'm not sure how many exactly, but I think there's more. So cool. I, I want to mention something that you brought up about how you don't have much fantasy in your bookshelves. And I think we had this discussion, I think the last time about how it was really hard to pick out or identify um, fantasy stories in comic book format. And I was trying to think of why that is. And the idea I just had was, since we're talking about comparisons to science fiction, is that I've read a lot of um, short fiction in the science fiction world. But when we think about fantasy stories, we think of stories that involve, if not high fantasy, some aspect of world building. And I, I not, I'm not saying it's exclusive, but I feel like most fantasy stories that anybody wants to tell is going to be long form, which means it's going to require an investment of pages and time. And I think it's much easier to write a short science fiction story and publish it in like a month versus saying i want to work on a fantasy story and i hope the publishing company i'm working with doesn't go bankrupt or that my story is not selling well enough i have to cut it off or a bunch of other things that go on along the way that could terminate a fantasy series because i would have a hard time trying to read a fantasy story in six six issues and feel like i'm immersed in that universe whereas with a science fiction story they could explore a science fiction idea in which the, the universe is just an ambient context to what the idea the author is trying to get across. So I think with fantasy, you need the world building and that requires more than six, 12 or 18 issues of a story. Um, and because I think fantasy story is popular in novel format or it may be more popular outside of America, it can be a harder sell to make a fantasy epic in comic book mm -hmm. format because if it really doesn't hit 
the nerve for a lot of readers that doesn't touch the spot or feels like it's a very tropey family story that people just get bored with, mm. it will be terminated. And when that happens, I think it adds to the pile of like, well, fantasy doesn't sell that well in comic books. Do we want to risk publishing this? And it a lot of times, I think publishers go like, let's not do this right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I agree with all that. Um, I would, that sort of forces me to pose the question to you though, Shaynis. Um, what would you say then, well, two questions really. I, what would you say then would be sort of the, I don't want to say cutoff point or a good, um, a good number of issues at which uh, good world building can be established? And then the second question, sort of a follow-up to that is, do you think it's possible or how would it look if you had, say, a shorter, let's say maybe 16, 20 issues at most sort of mini-series? Um, let's say it's fantasy-based, but it's, it's a shorter series that's sort of sculpted around uh, a concept or a main concept, a simple concept, kind of like the sci-fi stuff you were talking about earlier but let's set it in a fantasy world. Do you think, do you think that's possible? So to answer your first question, I think the writer should take however many issues they need to build out the world and tell a story they want to tell. Um, world building for me, I don't think, maybe they could do it in a pay, maybe they can do it in one issue, but I think when I go to a fantasy story, like, like Drew likes those like long form fantasies, it's because I want to be immersed in this larger world. And if it's too short, I feel like my adventure with these characters or this world is too abbreviated, and then it doesn't. It probably won't resonate with me as much. Now, I'm, again, I'm speaking for myself only, really here. Maybe people want shorter fantasy, um, but I find that fantasy is more of a setting, and that. And so, to answer your question, is that you could maybe think of a maybe there's a short story where the the fantasy is the exploration of using some sort of magical, magical device and the ramifications of what can happen. Like for example, rubbing a genie's lamp and making three wishes. That would be, I would say that's probably a fantasy story and you could probably do a short um, story about the choices people make and the consequences that, that result from them. That, that could probably be done in, in a six issue trade or like a 12 issue story about like the, 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 the follies of, of wishing for things that one really shouldn't have to wish for. Um, and there are plenty of stories really like, out there like that and even movies. Um, so I, that could happen, but then, but then you're not doing the fantasy world building. Um, and I think when people think of fantasy, I think a lot of people want that world building. Um, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think, however, though, that may be more of an expectation than, than a necessity. Um, I think it's possible to do something in a shorter form. And although it may seem lacking or it may not have, you know, the depth of world building that we're used to. I mean, you and I both, and we both enjoy long form stories. Sure. Um, but I don't know if you're, if you're going to start something out and you're not sure if it's going to flop or not, um, maybe a good route to go would just be to do something shorter, see if it catches. And then if it does, then you can expand it from there. Yeah. I was speaking more on the, on the end of the, of any publishing company that would risk trying to publish something or whatever else. I think from a 
writer's viewpoint, if they have a story, they're probably going to try to tell a story as they want um, and find a way to, to put it out there. Now, I don't. I, that's why I said period. I'm not saying it can only be long form and world building. A good writer, if they have an idea, will find a way to put that idea in however many pages they want to put the idea out. Um, and you're probably right. There is more of the expectation that when people go to a fantasy story, I think even a writer, they're like, okay, I want to build up my world. Um, um, and they're probably, like, for, even with prose doubles, I'm sure I could probably find a, a self-contained um, series of short fiction of, involving fantasy. I don't know of any off the top of my head that aren't already that are already built around a pre-existing fantasy world. But I can think of a lot of like collections of short science fiction. Um, so I, so it's, again, it's a more of a curiosity of like why that is the case. Like, is it because we're fueled by the expectation that we want long form world building? That's why nobody really tries to bother with short fantasy fiction because who wants to read that? Maybe that's a question that they're asking. Um, but I'm saying if you want to write it, then that means there's somebody out there who wants to read it. Um, so I, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to preclude by saying that one cannot have a short fantasy. I just think that a lot of people want to, a lot, I feel like a lot of people would want to write a fantasy story, want to build their own world in fantasy. And a lot of people who want to read fantasy want to be immersed and invested in the world building. Agreed, agreed. Um, mm -hmm. And that tends to be my preference and my experience as well. It's just, you're right though it's a really interesting observation like i have no no trouble it doesn't seem strange to me at all to read a bunch of say shorter isaac asimov or philip k dick stories or whatever but when someone says fantasy you know what i think of is just what i grew up with right like like i was saying lord of the rings chronicles of narnia um i forget what the the dragon books were called but all those were like like you said long form um dragon books, are you like aragon Maybe, maybe it it sounds kind of familiar, but I'd have to go back and check. I don't, I want to get the title wrong, but yeah, see, those are more long. Dragon Riders of Perth. Yes, that was it. That was it. I kept wanting to say Pern or something, but yeah. So I used to read those. Um, but even even something like Star Wars, which we were talking uh, science fantasy before. I'm glad Shane has made that clarification because I always actually I, I think it is Pern. Pern. <laughs> Yeah, I just double checked it, looked it up online. And McCaffrey, okay. right? Yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. one. Yeah, but uh, I'm glad I'm glad Shane has made that clarification because I would always sort of like get into it with people, and to me, it did seem to have fantasy elements. And they're like, "No, man, like spaceships, laser guns, it's sci-fi." So yeah, <laughs> but at I, no I point just... to explain how the spaceships and lasers work or the technicalities <laughs> of them. Exactly. I'd be like, okay, well, now I can just be like, hey, just just go talk to Shane. He'll say this. But um, yeah, the the world building aspect of uh, Star Wars is definitely that's just one of my favorite parts about it um, by far. It's just like feeling like I'm immersed in this whole other universe with all these other characters and stuff. You, you, maybe ask your question of the, maybe interesting expectation is like something we talked about earlier, and maybe something that I probably mentioned was that when you think of fantasy and world building, a lot of fantasy typically involves some sort of mythos or genesis story. Some, something that, that 
the story takes place in its present moment, but it's connected to some events that happened hundreds of thousands of years before that, right? And I would say the progenesis to fantasy is the Bible. It's also um, the Odyssey, the Iliad, a lot of these great works of, of these tomes that told stories of civilizations that themselves were perhaps fantastical in some sense. Um, the Greek and Roman myths, I would argue are probably individually short fantasy fiction, but are all part of a larger volume that is, that is part of the, the world of the pantheon of the gods. That you wouldn't read one short fantasy, uh, you wouldn't read one mythos about Zeus and say, okay, that's it. There, you'd be like, who's Zeus? And there's plenty more books that, that tell about Zeus, Hercules, Hera, the other gods, the various adventures, Jason and the Argonauts, stuff like that. I would want to meet the one dude who was like, you know what? I read about Zeus. I wasn't big on it. <laughs> <laughs> I would want to meet that dude. <laughs> but like, but like those stories. Prometheus, meh. <laughs> but I'm just saying, whoever, whoever those who wrote those stories, they didn't, even they wrote them as short fiction, they were written with intent of being part of a larger volume, a larger epic. So you can think of them as, as chapters in like the adventures of Hercules, so to speak. The chapters of... Um, of the understanding of the gods and their interactions with, with the people. And I, I would argue that that is actually the genesis of what we consider modern fantasy telling. And I think that's kind of like the expression people came into that if I want to do world building, I need to have a mythos. I need to have some history to this world. And that takes a little time to develop and, and bring people in. Um, so I think it's because that I think I, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not a, a, um, a professor or um, an expert in that, but I feel like that's where fantasy kind of drew its its legs from. And no, yeah, I'm sorry. Let me go ahead and finish, Shannon. And and so that, that's why I think we all, I think, someone inherently when we go into fantasy, kind of have this expectation or this desires because we want that world. Yeah, I want absolutely. the journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You want an unformed world. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of thinking about that earlier when I was uh, mentioning tapping into deeper archetypes and stuff like that. A lot of it, um, you're right, it has it definitely threads or roots that are that are very deeply connected to sort of that tradition of having these. I guess I guess you call them mythological or these stories, these legends or whatever that are that are larger than life. Um, you can even look at some of the stories in the Bhagavad Gita or um, Epic of Gilgamesh or, or something like that, where you do, you just have these, this, this mythos that's, you know, people back then, there's a sense of wonder. They're, they're trying to explain something <clears throat> that is at that point kind of beyond explanation. Mm-hmm. Even now, I mean, you look at humans in 2020, we don't want to admit it. We're all like, oh, science, rah, rah. But I think I think even we have this sort of system of trying to struggle with things that we don't completely understand. There's always going to be that sense of, of wonder that I think fantasy sort of taps into when it's when it's at its best, when it's doing. I was going to say when it's doing what it should be doing, when it when it's doing its job really well, um, <laughs> it it taps into that sense of wonder and that sense of looking at something that you can't completely explain, but it forces you to look at yourself in the way that you relate to the world on a, on a deeper level than you otherwise would have. 
do we know what's out there like in the stars 14 billion light years away no but it forces us to to wonder and and to yeah. think and to yeah look at ourselves at a different level yeah that's a good point man i, I think that is that, that that is something that i really appreciate a lot about fantasy is that sense of wonder and uh the imagination and the creativity and like all you guys were saying you know having a world that you can explore and all that or or just imagine um yeah that, that's that's a, that's where the enjoyment comes from and uh oh yeah one more uh, honorable mention from me i, I was going to i was thinking about talking about fables uh the vertigo Ooh. comic from dc um but i i was also thinking like sandman maybe that could make our top 25 it just depends on you know that army of scholars and and arcanists and academics that's busy compiling uh the list even as we speak you know they're toiling away so ho hopefully they make the right decision man and, and put fables on that top 25 so we can have a whole episode on it so zach i want to say i want to say thing about what you mentioned about this idea of, of science, like, because I, I do, I do work in math and physics, so I, I like the hard rules of science. But much like somebody needing a break from work, sometimes it's fun to take a break and say, "Well, what if there are things that we really could not explain, or I don't want to explain with science? What if there was this aspect of fantasy out there, like, like you said, billions of light years away, where even our Hubble telescope can't peek into? It's out. It's the light will never reach us, so to speak. What could be lurking out there potentially? And you know, and we, we see all these movies about alien invaders and it's a science fiction movie about how we have to figure out technologically how to defeat them. But at the same time, why not raise the question like, what if it's a different set of beings that have powers that where science does not help us? That it really, to an, ascent, to an extent, one could envision this fantasy epic of something coming out from the far reaches of space and coming to Earth, you know? So that, that, it's like I said, it's that wonder of like, what else could be out there that we don't know about that may not be scientific for what we understand, you know, as far as, as what we understand science to be. That's true. That's true. Um, and, you know, our knowledge is incomplete. We could always discover something that turns a lot of what we thought we knew on its head. We have before. So, you know, we may discover something like that again. Who knows? I also think that the reason why fantasy appeals is because each of us kind of wants to be the hero of our own story <laughs> and we don't want that story to be too short. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's the reason why Albert wakes up every day. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, Albert, are you the hero of your fantasy? Um, I don't need to be the hero of my fantasy. I just need to make sure that uh, the conditions of my world are ones that don't depress me. <laughs> so, like, in my perfect fantasy world, I wake up and, you know, I don't have to deal with anybody's crap. That's the end of my fantasy. <laughs> That's how my story ends. That's how it starts. That's how it ends. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I did have some thoughts listening to you guys. Like, I, I do think there's something to the idea that, especially if you're comparing publishers if you're comparing it to something like the big two um and you wonder why like they don't um take more chances on fantasy or something like that a thought did occur to me that one um 
there are places where you see fantasy and like one of the places that i have noticed is in a lot of like young adult fiction and those comics tend to be a lot thicker and a lot bigger so it does give you more room to just re- it, it gives you more story in those uh digest sized books you know um another place where i do feel like i've seen a good amount of fantasy in recent years has been at a publisher like image like there have been a quite a few like smaller fantasy stories not even smaller like there are some small fantasy stories like some issues that i picked up i i don't don't even really fully remember the names but then you'll have something like monstrous or maybe even something like saga to some extent you know you know, now that you mention it regarding image, because I think the publication changed hands to, I think, Villard at some point. It was the flight anthologies. I, I have no idea. You, you um, have to tell me on that one. The, the, the early anthologies, they're just a bunch of little short stories written by various creative teams. Yeah. So those stories continue into the volumes that they put out. I think they put out one one a year. Yeah. Is he still making flight? I, I don't know. I, so. I think they officially I, ended I, it. I think they. I think they ended it. I think I have almost all of them. I know I missed a couple of the volumes here and there, which I'll pick up at some point once I figure out which ones I'm missing. I remember uh, Amulet was a cool story. Yeah, kids that's, love Amulet that's too. That's something that stuck out. That's something that has appealed to kids and adults. Yeah, and I would argue that the the short stories in in the flight anthologies, a lot of them bo- would fall into the fantastical or fantasy category. Yeah, totally. So, so Zach, yeah, you can have short fantasy. Yeah. Um, just kind of it just it kind of hits the heart of the sense of adventure without needing to pull you into the full world because you kind of get in context what they're trying to do you're just like like we're just gonna, we're just going to give you a sense of journey in the in these few pages so yeah. so it can be done but then it makes you but then it makes you want more of it that's the problem you want more <laughs> of it yeah yeah no for sure okay there's that also, makes sense there's also that one series I I found not all of it but. It's called Flavor. It's by Joe Keating, and it's a it's a it's a fantasy story. But the the premise of their world is basically that everyone is a chef, or like food is very important to their world. So it, it's got quite an interesting bent to it, you know. And it's only six issues long. Is the thing they stopped it after the six. Either that or Joe Keating decided. That was all he needed to tell his story, but that's a funny premise. Yeah, Albert, instead what, of wizards, this, they're all chefs. <laughs> what's this world called? What what sort of food do they make? Uh, I like I I haven't actually read it. All I know, well, I read the first issue, and it's the comic is just called Flavor, and yeah, there's there's like some sort of mystical dark thing that's threatening their world, but at the same time all the characters and like the conceit of their world is that it's built around cooking and it's built around food. So <laughs> your, your, your protagonist in the story is a plucky young girl who's trying to make her way into becoming the greatest chef uh, of the <laughs> land. But at the same time, she's also fending off the forces of darkness. <laughs> you know that that might just be my fantasy world where there's always something to eat and always something evil to kill i think, <laughs> I think yeah. yeah i mean if i ever find the rest of the issues i will definitely you know i will have to de- do a dive into it but 
you know, those those elements in it of themselves were enough to catch my interest. Yeah, there were a couple of uh, stories that I never read, but I've, I've always been curious about them. Like you guys, I think somebody mentioned ElfQuest uh, earlier in this episode. I remember when I was a kid, I, I came across it at a bookstore and read some of it. And I don't really remember too much about it now, but that's something that I'd be down to give another try. There's also uh, this indie series called Castle Waiting. I think it's by Linda Medley. I've never read that, but I was always curious about it. And then uh, there was a manga called Berserk. I've heard that was a good dark fantasy. It's pretty long too, from what I know. I feel like Elf Quest inhabits the same space as Bone because when I was growing up, they were those were two comics that I know got a lot of attention. Um, I think Bone was probably the the larger like monetary success, but those two comics were definitely something that was constantly like in the back of my mind. You know, I was just always peripherally aware of them. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, well, that was our fantasy episode. Uh, that was a great journey just to talk about all these different comics, even the ones that were just uh, in passing. Even just thinking about concepts of fantasy and and theories about why there aren't, why why we kind of struggle to think of a traditional fantasy comics. That was all good discussion, man. I'm glad yeah. uh, you guys were able to to join for this. So, so uh, yeah. don't don't just leave it as a fantasy, but make it your reality <laughs> to get some fantasy there you comics. Go. There you go. Ha ha ha! Ha ha! The Between tastic. <laughs> Albert's gone his crazy mode. Yeah. I guess that's how you know it's time to uh, end the recording. Excellent, Albert. Excellent. Well, it's been fun. I definitely enjoyed talking about fantasy. Um, yeah, agreed. The discussion agreed. was definitely very insightful. To let me out some more thoughts I haven't had before. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. That was fun. Thanks for joining us and everybody who's listening. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time. I think when I sign off, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to that one song by uh, that, that indie rock band, the naked and famous. They have a song called I kill giants. <laughs> so I think it's, it's time to, to listen to that song again. Nice. I'm thinking, I, I was thinking of watching I kill giants tonight. I should watch that too. I, I do need to watch yeah. that. Yeah. It's a good movie.